0: to us the outline of where we're going is inside the white bulletin. I should warn you that um, for regulars I'm experimenting with a new format or Bible study questions this week. Um, I, I'm rather taken with it but it's moving us away a little bit from simple comprehension to much more personal application. Uh, anyway if there are howls of anguish we can review the situation next week. But uh, first of all let's pray. God, our Father, we know that only when you open a door for the word into our hearts can your word enter and change us. So we pray that as we come to your word now, that you would do that work of opening that door into each heart here. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What happened to the twelve disciples of Jesus? Uh, I wonder if you've ever really thought about that. Everyone, of course, knows what happened to Judas. And I imagine most Christians know that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. What about the others? It would be nice to think, wouldn't it, that after many years of faithful ministry that they ended their days peacefully in a retirement village. The reality, of course, couldn't be more different. Sources outside the Bible indicate that Andrew was crucified in Greece. James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, was thrown off the roof of the temple in Jerusalem and clubbed to death. Uh, Bartholomew was flayed alive in Armenia. James, the brother of John, was beheaded. Uh, Thomas was run through with a spear in the East Indies. Philip was hanged in Ethiopia. Uh, Tavius was shot with arrows and killed. Uh, Simon the Zealot was executed in Iran. The only one who seemed to have a comparatively easy ride was John, the author of Revelation, but even he was exiled, wasn't he, on the island of Patmos, and tradition says that he died in extreme old age in Ephesus. These men spent the better part of their lives spreading the good news about Jesus. They quite literally turned the world of their day upside down. But for all their trouble, they paid a terrible price. And it challenges us, doesn't it, to think about the problem of suffering. It's a problem we're all familiar with. Uh, In light of all the suffering that we see in the world and in the church, how can we believe in a God who is both in control and loving at the same time? It's not a philosophical problem. It's a deeply personal one. C.S. Lewis was uh, one of the brightest and, I think, most influential Christian writers of the 20th century. But uh, at one point, suffering broke into his life in such a way that, for a while, his faith was very severely tested. After a a brief marriage, his wife, Joy, uh, died of cancer. And devastated by the grief, Lewis poured out his feelings in a a series of notebooks. He never originally intended to publish, but in the end he did put them all into a book under the title, A Grief Observed. It is a ruthlessly honest book. It's emotionally raw. Listen to one of the darkest passages. Lewis wrote this, quote, Meanwhile, where is God? go to him when your need is desperate and all other hope is in vain and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the other side. And after that, silence. Now maybe you can identify with that. Uh, Where is God, you might be saying? I can't see him, I can't feel him. And for some people that proves that he's not there at all. For others it, it simply adds to feelings of doubt. Can he really be there? And if he is there, does he really love me? The first readers of the book of Revelation were going through extremely difficult times in the Christian life. Suffering, of course, is always hard, but uh, you can imagine what it's like when the suffering has come not in spite of you being a Christian, but because you are a Christian. And that was the issue for some of John's first readers. Some of them were facing very, very significant persecution and were being killed. And some words right at the very beginning of the book Take us right to the heart of what John is doing in the book of Revelation. I think it might be the key to the whole book. Turn back with me to a moment, for a moment please to chapter 1 and verse 9, page 876. Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, page 876. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, I think that's very significant. You see, John isn't pulling rank and separating himself from his readers. He's not saying, um, I'm the great apostle and that's why you must listen to me. No, he's saying, I'm suffering with you. I'm in exile. I am sharing with you in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus. Suffering and kingdom. Now, how on earth do those two things hold together? Uh, we recognize the suffering, and John's readers certainly did. Some of them were being killed for their faith. And yet for the Christian, John says, suffering goes with kingdom. Because, you see, in the book of Revelation, John is saying that in the midst of all the suffering in the world and the suffering we might be experiencing personally, God's kingdom has already broken in. The great victory already been won by the Lord Jesus when he died on the cross. So the kingdom has already come, it is coming, and one day when Jesus returns it will come fully and finally and perfectly. And what John is doing in the book is giving us a glimpse behind the scenes to see beyond the suffering to the spiritual reality that the kingdom of God has come and it is coming. See, the point is that if we only ever look at the suffering and think about that, it can feel, can't it, as if God isn't saying anything and that the door of heaven is locked and bolted. But John says, no, look with me and you'll see. And if you were with us at the beginning of the series, you'll remember that the first thing he saw in Revelation chapter 4 was an open door. It wasn't bolted, it wasn't double bolted. No, the door in heaven was opened. And beyond that open door, John says, I saw a throne with someone sitting on it. In other words, God is sovereign. He's on the throne, he's in control. And on the throne, says John, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. So God is not only sovereign, but he is very, very loving. So much so that he sent his son, the the slain lamb, the sacrifice who died for us so that we can be forgiven and know him personally. Now, these realities, you see, are calling us to patient endurance. You see, if we look not only at the suffering, but also fix our minds on these realities of the kingdom that has come and is coming in the future, well, that's going to strengthen us to keep on going, persevering in the Christian life. Another image that we saw in those chapters was the scroll, which is the book of destiny, remember? And uh, it contains God's detailed, unchanging plan of salvation and judgment that's being worked out between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And because of the great victory that Jesus won on the cross, only Jesus was deemed worthy to open the scroll and to, as it were, launch God's great plan, rather like, I suppose, a ship being launched down the slipway to begin its journey to its destination. And so Jesus, you remember, opens the seals one by one. We saw that in chapter 6. When he opens the first four seals, four horsemen ride out across the world. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we saw, didn't we, that they represent the spirits of imperialism, revolution, economic depression, and death. And those horsemen have been riding throughout the centuries, right down to the present day. And John was saying, Christians are not protected from the suffering that these horsemen have unleashed upon the world. Remember, don't you, the opening of the fifth seal, which revealed to us the martyrs, Christians who died for their faith. Christians are not immune. But now in chapter 7, we have the same period of human history, but from a different point of the compass, from a different perspective. Because if the focus of chapter 6 is suffering, the focus of chapter 7 is kingdom. Don't just look at the suffering, says John. It could sink you. No, in the midst of the suffering, open the eyes of faith and see the kingdom right now and the kingdom still to come. And in chapter 7, John sees two visions of God's people. The first is the vision of God's people sealed on Earth, and the second is of god 's people singing in heaven and if you and I can get these two visions firmly into our hearts and minds this morning, then I believe and I pray that they will give us the patient endurance that all of us need so first of all then god 's people sealed on earth verses one Eight. Look with me at verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. After this, now that doesn't mean later in time, it's not that kind of afterwards. Because what he's about to describe doesn't happen later than the vision in chapter 6. It's just that he had the vision after the vision he had in chapter 6. In other words, this is parallel history. Okay, It's the same thing seen from a different angle. There is a very good reason to identify the four winds in verse 1 with the four horsemen in chapter 6. Now you may remember we've said before that um, John in this book is teaching New Testament truth in Old Testament language. And the Old Testament source for the vision of the four horsemen was Zechariah chapter 6, don't need to turn to it. But in Zechariah chapter 6 the four horsemen and the four winds go together. They both have power to harm the earth. Both are controlled by four angels of God. And before the winds are allowed to blow in Revelation 7, before these horses are allowed to ride, God says, Stop. Or what is it you say to a horse to stop it? Whoa, I suppose. Whoa. Because before bringing the suffering with them, first of all, in verse 3, a seal is put on the foreheads of God's people. And that seal marks them out as belonging to God, rather like a, a brand that a farmer would put on livestock. It tells him which animal belongs to him and which one doesn't. And in just the same way, God knows his people by this mark, by this seal. He owns them and he protects them. Now elsewhere, the Apostle Paul, you remember, speaks of the Holy Spirit being the seal which God uses to identify those people who belong to him. He says, having believed... God has marked you with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now friends, what this means is that if we have trusted in Christ, we are completely secure because we've received the seal of the Holy Spirit. And it means that that none of the suffering unleashed by the four winds and the four horsemen can ever ultimately shake us out of heaven. Now that ought to be a tremendous comfort to us this morning. In the midst of suffering, and you might be experiencing suffering this morning, it would be natural for you to ask the question, well, does God care? It can sometimes feel like that. But you see, in this vision, in chapter 7, John is saying, whatever you might be going through this morning, God has not abandoned you. He loves you. He knows you. He's placed his seal on you. Every single one of you. That's the significance of the 144,000. I think this is a good moment to say that the (coughs) numbers in the book of Revelation are not to be taken literally. They are symbolic. And the 144,000 here represents the, the total number of believers throughout the ages. Uh, it, it seems that the number is has, has derived from the 12 tribes of Israel, multiplied by the 12 apostles, multiplied by a 1,000, where a 1,000 just signifies a very large number. So, so in this text, you've got the total number, the uh, the totality of all believers in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, which of course includes us. And all of them are sealed and known and loved. Now, let me say again, that does not mean Christians won't suffer. Remember that that fifth seal in chapter 6 which revealed the Christians who died for their faith. But it, it does mean that suffering can't ultimately harm us and it can't stop us from reaching our destination which is of course the new creation. And along the way suffering is not a sign that God doesn't love us either. No, in the mystery of God's gracious sovereignty he allows the suffering And he works through it for our good. At home on my bookshelf I've got uh, three different biographies of John Newton. Uh, He of course wrote the most famous hymn in the English language, uh, Amazing Grace. Uh, Formerly a slave trader and a brutal man, he was wonderfully converted to Jesus Christ. And uh, John Newton uh, wrote a great deal about suffering. How could could he not do that uh, as a pastor in the 18th century when suffering was very much in your face? It wasn't hidden. It was everywhere. But, of course, pastors in every age have to engage with the question and the reality of suffering. And as Newton was writing about it, he said this. He says, I've experienced very little myself, Compared to many people, I've had but slight afflictions. And then you read his biography, and you realize that he had far more suffering than most of us. His mother died when he was six years old. He was then packed off to boarding school. And shortly afterwards, in his early teens, he went away to sea. His father was drowned in a swimming accident. And sometime later, John Newton had an epileptic seizure, which meant he could never go to sea again, so he lost his career. The people closest to him who knew him best encouraged him to go and become a pastor, but that wasn't easy. In fact, he couldn't find a job as a pastor for six years. Uh, the one bright spot, spot in his life was he married his childhood sweetheart, and from what we can tell, they had a blissful marriage. But they couldn't have children. Uh, They adopted two daughters, one died of tuberculosis at the age of 14 and uh, the other suffered from very, very severe mental illness and she ended up in a mental institution. One of Newton's closest friends was William Cooper, the poet, and Cooper of course suffered from suicidal depression for, I think it was 27 years It was a time of great sadness for Newton because he loved William Cooper greatly. So how did did John Newton engage with suffering? And I've only mentioned some of the suffering he had. On one occasion he said this, the Lord reigns. That, he said, should be the banner headline for every newspaper every day. Everything described in the newspaper should be under the banner headline, The Lord Reigns. And what is true of human history is also true of every individual life. The Lord reigns. And uh, for the Christian, the Lord reigns, which means that he has sealed you and he loves you. So whatever's going on in your life whether we understand it or not, it is working out for our ultimate good. And in another place, Newton said these very striking words, everything God sends is needful, nothing is needful that he withholds. Those are striking words, aren't they? When his daughter first plunged into very, very deep depression, he wrote, My trial is great, but the all-sufficient Lord is my support. And I'm sure that this affliction did not spring up out of the ground. In other words, it wasn't just a random event. He says, I trust the event will be for his glory and for our good. And in his writings, he very frequently compared... Uh, Jesus to a divine surgeon and in one place he said this faithful are the wounds of our infallible friend he sometimes cuts deep but never too deep nor in the wrong place nor at the wrong time and he is near to heal now maybe you're going through a rough time this morning and those words are hard for you to hear and I don't say them lightly but you see the point is that if you've trusted in Christ you are never alone and whatever it feels like God has not turned his back on you. He knows you he loves you, He sealed you and he will not let you go. So don't just think of the suffering Think of the kingdom right now, God's people, sealed on earth, but also think of the kingdom to come, which is the second vision. The second vision is God's people singing in heaven, verses 9 to 17. Look with me at verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, From every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now that is a very, very different picture, isn't it, to the end of chapter 6. Do you remember the end of chapter 6? Crowds of people terrified of the wrath of God on Judgment Day. They're so terrified that they're crying out to the mountains to fall on them. But here, there is a vast multitude praising God for salvation. Notice several points. Notice, first of all, the number of them It's a great multitude that no one could count. By the way, that shows us, doesn't it, that we shouldn't take the 144,000, literally. If you have the time and the patience, I guess anybody could perhaps count to 144,000. But this is a number that no one can count, which actually means that this is the fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham that his spiritual descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Notice the number. Notice also their breadth and diversity because it's a global family from every nation and tribe and people and language. Every single one. Now, just think about John's first readers. They were a tiny minority And it would be entirely understandable if they'd been asking themselves, I wonder if we've really backed a winner here. Uh, We're few in number in just a handful of churches. We are just totally insignificant compared to the vast numbers of pagan people against us in the Roman Empire. And John says, no, don't lose the eternal perspective. The people of God are a vast multitude from every tribe and nation so let's think about this together for a moment what are the really big stories uh, in the media today well I suppose climate change is one of them Uh, the possible impeachment of Donald Trump is maybe another one Um, if you're English, Brexit is another one But actually the really big story in the world today is none of those things. The really big story in the world today actually never makes the newspaper headlines. It is the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. As men and women from every tribe and nation and people and language hear the gospel and put their trust in Jesus. So this week, Gillian and I were invited by our brother, Privilege, to attend the international student celebration down at the college. And uh, it was very exciting to see so many gifted young people preparing for international gospel ministry. Now, I have no doubt that, that some of those there could have chosen to pursue a more financially rewarding and glamorous career. I'm sure they could. And the world, of course, thinks that those who choose to spend their lives sharing the gospel are simply wasting their time. But can I say that in the light of Revelation 7, you are working with the grain of history. Because that's where history's heading, isn't it? A vast multitude with breadth and diversity And that, you see, must change our perspective on all suffering in the present. Uh, John Newton uh, once met a woman who had lost all of her worldly wealth and he went to visit her, to comfort her. And She was was crying, she was grieving. But she said to John John Newton, don't misunderstand my tears because I'm not crying because I've lost everything. No, I'm crying because I have cared far more than I ought to about the things that I've lost. And Newton says that she never ever spoke about her loss again because she'd put it into perspective. And Newton says, yes, she got it absolutely right. And to make the point, he used a rather clever illustration. He said, imagine a man going on a journey in a horse drawn carriage. Uh, He's on his way to inherit a vast estate. It's an amazing mansion with lots of land and about a mile away from his destination the carriage that he's travelling in breaks down. So he he has to get out of the carriage and he has to walk the remaining mile. And Newton says uh, do you think that he's going to spend that last mile wailing my carriage is broken my carriage is broken of course not. He's going to walk that last mile with a spring in his step because his eyes are fixed on that amazing inheritance that is waiting for him. Now that isn't to belittle the very great and real suffering that some people have to endure in this life. We're not doing that. But it does put all suffering in its proper perspective. An amazing number of people and an amazing diversity of people. And notice their position in verse 9. Can we see verse 9? They are standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They're standing. Remember at the end of chapter 6 where people were, were terrified of standing in the presence of the Lord. They knew that they weren't worthy to do it. Who can stand, they asked. And they cowered in his presence but here in chapter 7 people are standing before the throne. How can that be? Well look at their clothing. They're wearing white robes rather like Julian is this morning with one or two white garments around. White robes that speak of, of purity and holiness and victory. But how's that? Because if we know ourselves at all we know that our lives actually are wretchedly dirty. And if you don't know that about yourself, you haven't really begun in the Christian life. Verse 13 is the answer. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who've come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, that you see is how they can stand in the presence of the living God. Their robes have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. A few years ago, I read this this week, a few years ago, a pastor in the UK had just taken up an appointment in a new church, and uh, in his first week, He needed to take some clothes to the dry cleaners. And um, as he was standing in the queue, he recognised a lady from the congregation just one or two places nearer the desk. And he decided uh, to strike up a conversation with her. And he said very sincerely, "Uh, Excuse me, madam, but do you know anything that washes whiter than snow? And uh, she clearly didn't recognise him, and she looked rather confused, and she said... "Uh, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm afraid I don't work here. And uh, he said, I was rather hoping you would say, the blood of Jesus, how do you do? I'm your new pastor. (laughs) Do you know anything that washes whiter than snow? Only the blood of Jesus, isn't it? Inwardly, we are extremely dirty. I am and you are. We are not fit for the presence of God. But Jesus died on that cross to take the penalty that we deserved. And he took on himself all of the filth and the muck and all of that stuff we're so ashamed of. And you see, if we trust in him, what does he do? He gives us, now listen to this, he gives us the perfection of his character. Have you thought about that? That's what it means to be dressed in white. And it means we're fit to stand in the presence of God. What a difference it makes. And these people are not only wearing white robes, but uh, in verse 14, we're told they've come out of the Great Tribulation. Now, a lot of nonsense has been written about this. It is actually absolutely fascinating, so let me put you right. The word translated tribulation there is exactly the same word that we find in chapter 1 and verse 9 where it is translated as suffering. Do you remember that? Suffering, kingdom and patient endurance. So these people you see have come through the suffering. They've persevered. They've patiently endured in the language of the letters of the churches in chapters 2 and 3, now they are victorious. They've, They've overcome, they've conquered. They've made it to the end. And now they're enjoying an unbroken relationship with God without any suffering whatsoever. Verse 16, lovely words. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. That is an astonishing image, isn't it? Do you get it? A lamb as a shepherd, protecting them, providing for them, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you cry much? Perhaps you wish you could. Perhaps you feel, if you could, it would bring some release from your suffering. But the tears somehow don't come. But you see, on that day, the tears and all the reasons for the tears will be wiped away. All pain gone forever. Perhaps you're carrying a wound with you that you think will never really disappear. It's been there for years and years and years. And you can't imagine it's ever going to go away. Well, verse 16 and following is saying, one day it will, if you've trusted in Christ. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, well, we've already had a taste, haven't we? I hope, of these wonderful realities. Because we know that Jesus is the Good Shepherd. He, he comforts us, doesn't he, in our griefs. He leads us to the living water. As day by day we believe his promises and we, we walk with him through every situation and every circumstance. So you see, we don't just look at the terrible reality of suffering. Of course we can't ignore it because it's painful and it's real, but we don't just look there. We feed on Jesus and we trust in him. And uh, in the midst of the suffering, we remember, do we not, that the kingdom has come. We remember the wonderful truth that God's people are sealed on earth. And one day, we will be singing with them in heaven. And in light of that, God willing, we will patiently endure. Have you got it? Do you see the connection? The Bible is not for one moment belittling human suffering. It's not for a moment saying, You know, just get over it, it doesn't really matter. No, suffering is so real, it's such a problem that Jesus had to die to deal with it. And let's remember, if our suffering is great, his suffering was even greater. But while it recognises the reality of suffering, the Bible says to us it isn't the only reality. There is an open door in heaven the kingdom has come one day it will come fully therefore therefore trust and persevere let's pray heavenly father thank you for the realism of the bible which doesn't hide from the reality of suffering. Thank you for the wonderful hope. Jesus has come, and he's died, as we're going to remember in a moment as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And he's offering wonderful spiritual food right here, right now, and he's offering eternity with him forever. So, Father, keep us trusting in these things and persevering in the light of them. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.